Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Natalia Shkolobasait. I'm a host of New Books in Ukrainian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm delighted to speak today with Sergei Bilenki about his new book, Laboratory of Modernity, Ukraine Between Empire and Nation, 1772-1914, published in 2023 by McGill Queen's University Press in collaboration with the Canadian Institute for Ukrainian Studies. Serhii Bilenki is a research associate at the Canadian Institute of Ukrainian Studies at the University of Alberta. He taught courses on Russian, Ukrainian, and East European histories at the University of Toronto, Columbia University, and Harvard Ukrainian Summer Institute. Serhii Bilenki is the author of the following books. Romantic Nationalism in Eastern Europe, Russian, Polish, and Ukrainian Political Imaginations, Imperial Urbanism in the Borderlands, Kyiv, 1800-1905. Serhii Bilenki um, is also the editor of the Selected Writings of the 19th Century Ukrainian Intellectuals Fashioning Modern Ukraine, Selected Writings of Mykola Kostomarov, Volodymyr Antonovich, and Mykhailo Drahomanov. He's also director of Harvard Ukrainian Summer Institute. Uh, hello, Sergei. Thank you so much for joining me today. And of course, congratulations on this new publication. Uh, thank you, Natalia, for inviting me to, to speak to you. I'm, I'm, I'm very honored to have this opportunity today. So uh, I'd like to uh, start with the uh, actual title of the book. Uh, it covers the time period from 1772 to 1914. And um, at the beginning of the book, uh, you mentioned that it's challenging to write a history of Ukrainian, and you emphasize that you would like to avoid a feel-good history. And um, the account you present in the book is highly entangled, particularly regarding the relations between Russia and Ukraine and how the Ukrainians were seeing themselves under the Russian Empire. However, there are a lot of interesting cases that you bring, but at times they do read like a feel-good history, although I understand that it was not your intention. 
So uh, this is not your first book, but your first history of Ukraine. Uh, what was the key question guiding and shaping uh, your book? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, I will start with feel good history. Uh, I, I don't know if it's, that's your impression or uh, I, I, will, I will see how many people will have the same impression. Uh, I think I did not, it was not my intention to produce a feel good history of Ukraine. Although perhaps uh, this feeling might come from the comparison of what's come afterwards. So I was speaking about the 20th century on all the bloodshed that's that, that, uh, happened. And so perhaps the time prior to 1914 seems like a feel-good time and hence feel-good history. Uh, although definitely the time I covered also contained a lot of tensions, a lot of conflicts, uh, and it was not at all feel good for many people yeah but that's for, again perhaps the impression uh when we compare uh these two different times yes before 1914 and what came afterwards world war one uh world war two and 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 many other things that happened in between uh now back to the question uh what was my goal uh when i uh wrote uh, the book and to put it simply my goal was to create to write uh, a, a history of Ukraine uh, that that would describe the experience of Ukraine and its various communities in the age of empires set against two major oppositions between nation and empire on the one hand and between tradition and modernity or modernization on the other and the key question that I actually addressed in the end of my book uh, seems perhaps a bit straightforward, but I think it might be the biggest takeaway from a book. And the question uh, sounds uh, the following. What is or can be the central meaning of your green history in the long 19th century? And the answer that I gave uh, in the very end is that during this time period, Ukraine emerged from the laboratory of modernity as a timely alternative to the time-worn empires. So Ukraine being the out of the most obvious alternative to the empire, particularly the Russian Empire. And the the, the, the incompatibility between Ukraine and Russia uh, is very much evident today uh, in front of our eyes. Yes. Uh, because we clearly see that as long as Ukraine remains democratic and Russia autocratic and imperial, they cannot coexist peacefully. Yes, they, they coexisted for a while peacefully in the 1990s, when Ukraine was not that democratic and Russia was not yet autocratic, but obviously with uh, Putin coming to, 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 to power, this equilibrium changed. And unfortunately, we see that Ukraine and Russia are simply incompatible. And that has historical roots to this incompatibility. And uh, partially, my book is an answer to this uh, question or uh, big, big dilemma. Uh, Ukraine indeed showcased during this long 19th century uh, how empires could be dismantled. Uh, Ukraine being almost the perfect great digger of empires. 
you know, particularly when we're talking about the Russian Empire, because the uh, experience of Ukraine and Ukrainians in Austria under Vienna was different, and we might talk about it separately. But Ukraine being Ukraine is a kind of strange case, because on the one hand, Ukraine indeed uh, was empire grave digger, uh, dismantled, destroyed the Russian Empire. On the other hand, a lot of the Ukrainians, what they were called Ukrainians or Little Russians, South Russians, were uh, empire builders. Yes, and and that's what basically made the Ukrainian case uh, prior to nineteen fourteen different from all other ethnic peripheries in Eastern Europe. Yes, you know, different from Poland, the Baltic lands, but uh, German uh, elite that was much loyal to to Saint Petersburg. So Ukraine was kind of mixture of different things, uh, almost a paradox. Yes, showcasing this two sides, yes, empire destroying and also empire building. And again, that's one of the uh, major things that I tried to uh, show in my book. Yeah, thank you. And yes, definitely, I'm also um, interested in hearing your thoughts about uh, how uh, different, for instance, um, Ukrainians were uh, under the Russian Empire compared to those under the Austro-Hungarian Empire uh, in terms of how they perceived themselves or in terms of how they saw their future. Uh, but uh, first of all, I would like to uh, shift our conversation a little bit to the terminology and uh, particularly uh, in terms terms of this conversation about the Russian Empire. So um, terminology is one of the contentious topics uh, to some extent. Uh, do we say, for instance, Ukraine or Malarosia? Uh, or do we stick with the unfortunate translation of Malarosia that seems to make it almost impossible to envision Ukraine as a cultural and political entity that at some certain periods was superior to Russia? And of course, in this case, I'm referring to little um, Russia. Uh, what was your approach to the terminology and what criticism were you anticipating when making your choice um, and uh, decision regarding certain terms? Because you use also little Russia and uh, Ukraine and uh, Malorussia. Uh, that's another great question. And it's also a question of practical use of the terms because we all, uh, as storied scholars, uh, particularly in the humanities, we need to use our terms carefully and uh, with some explanation why we do this. And I know that a lot of historians of this period, of Russia and Ukraine, they tend to shy away from using uh, present-day terms. So a number of my colleagues, for example, particularly in the West, those who write in English, not in, 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 not in Ukrainian, and they, again, they cautious uh, about using the term Ukraine and Ukrainians uh, when it comes to uh, the earlier period when those terms were not widely used. Now, in contrast to uh, my colleagues, uh, I don't shy away from using the term Ukraine and Ukrainians uh, when I speak about the territory of present-day Ukraine and about the people that is now known as Ukrainians, uh, particularly when I speak uh, in general terms. Yes, but I do uh, explain, I believe, uh, why I use the term Ukraine and Ukrainians with respect to uh, 
essentially uh, present-day territory of Ukraine and the majority population that historically lived on that territory. Now, does it mean that I uh, think that other terms are somewhat controversial and should not be used? Little Russia, as you mentioned, Omolorossia, uh, and your other terms? No, I think that we should use them all, depending on the context. Mm -hmm. And I'll just give you just an example when I would use uh, other terms than Ukraine. Mm -hmm. As because Ukraine, I agree, that is often uh, anachronistic term. Yes, it, it's a term that um, began to be used widely only in the late 90s, and actually even later in the early 20th century. So, but that doesn't mean that we cannot use it backwards. Yeah, because uh, if you look at other uh, cases, even the case of France or other European uh, established states and nations, historians don't use those terms backwards, <laughs> retroactively or anachronistically, simply uh, not to complicate the narrative. But when I speak about, uh, for example, identity issues, as of mm -hmm. population of Ukraine, uh, those especially known as ethnic Ukrainians, but also others, I would use uh, terms that were uh, widely used and applied to this territory and people in the 19th century. Uh, and hence, I use the concept of Little Russia uh, when it was applied to territory of Ukraine in the 19th century, particularly parts of Ukraine. I also uh, use the term South Russia, which was widely uh, popular uh, designation of Ukraine at the time, and lots of Ukrainian intellectuals uh, would call themselves South Russians, mm -hmm. and was kind of official uh, label. Uh, uh, but uh, all this variety of, 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 of terms can be confusing, and hence again, um, to avoid overcomplication, uh, I used the term Ukrainian Ukrainians. Uh, when I spoke about more general things, yes, uh, not about identity issues or regional uh, differences and the evolution of Ukrainian space, for example, which also deserves uh, attention. Yes, how Ukraine, from being uh, a very regional uh, designation, uh, became this kind of over-encompassing or, or, or kind of inclusive term uh, by the United century for Ukrainians, for locals. Yes, so that's a separate story and, and it's part of uh, my, my my narrative too. But again, as I, I will reiterate, I don't shy away from using the term Ukraine and I think um, uh, it has its own advantages. Yeah, it simply makes the narrative uh, kind of less... Uh, Overcomplicated, mm -hmm. yes, and, it, and, it, and it's. It, I don't see anything bad about it. But in all respects, I mean, in all cases, when I discuss particular issues with identities, with original differences, I uh, try to use terminology of the day. Mm -hmm. That would be my uh, answer to the question of terminology. Uh, and I know that some of my colleagues probably will, will disagree, but I think we still can. <laughs> And have some common ground. Yeah, thank you, thank you for that, um, Serhii. And uh, in your book, you also offer um, very ample, um, I would say, um, data um, that 
actually very vividly illustrate that even in the 19th century, all these terms were circulating uh, in the um, public discourse, in the literary discourse, in the cultural discourse, historical as well, uh, to some extent. Uh, and you also mention uh, uh, such writers as Vogel um, and uh, Taras Shevchenko, and both of them, including Vogel, <laughs> um, were also using Ukraine and uh, Malorosia. Sometimes they did it actually interchangeably. And it's an interesting case with Rashevchenko. For example, in when he wrote in Russian, in letters to his Russian correspondents, he would always, most often would use a term like South Russia, usually Russia, uh, or uh, Little Russia. But in his Ukrainian correspondence, and he would only use Ukraine. So for him, these terms were probably of equal size. Yes, but depending on the context, our but on, on other say, mm-hmm. he used these different terms interchangeably, but he knew the context when each of those terms had to be used. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we don't feel it, yes, as as you know, as 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 historians, but also as people who live in twenty first century. But people in the nineteenth century, they were conscious mm-hmm. of those terms and of their usage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's not always easy to for us to see how they navigated the, the, that complexity. But at least we know that term Ukraine uh, increasingly uh, was used by uh, people who were primarily loyal to Ukraine, yes, mm-hmm. like Shevchenko and his uh, his friends, yeah, as opposed to the terms like Little Russia and Southern Russia, which were continuously uh, used by uh, kind of People who were more loyal to to Russia, to the old Russian nation, uh, and Ukrainians simply tend to use it less and less. Those who are conscious of uh, of, of of their own Ukrainianness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of <laughs> possible answer. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Yeah, yeah, and uh, as, I, as I mentioned, um, uh, it's quite helpful uh, for the anglophone audiences, for instance, to uh, start tracing this circulation of those multiple terms uh, in order not to shy away, for instance, from uh, uh, this term Ukraine um, in this uh, usage in the 19th century. So, and uh, as your book clearly emphasizes, Ukraine was already a distinct. Uh, uh, national, cultural, and even political entity by the middle of the 19th uh, century, and Ukraine's distinctiveness from Russia was hard to question even in the 19th, 18th century. Uh, moreover, Ukrainians were providing Russia with intellectual resources on the way to the building of the Russian Empire. How did the Ukrainians see themselves in the 18th century and what changes, inflections, transformations took place in the 19th century? I will answer this question as a historian of the 19th century, not the 18th century, because historians of the 18th century might disagree with me, simply because they know more than me. But uh, I think the basic distinction uh, between uh, the 18th and 19th centuries, and I'll try to kind of summarize these this, this differences. 
first of all, we don't really know what the masses of population thought of themselves. Yes, before the opinion polls, before the you know widespread literacy, uh, before the censuses, which all happened much later, either in the late 19th century or even or in the 20th century. So what we know about the 18th century, we know mostly about the elites, that the educated class of Ukrainians, uh, most often called the officers and clergy, and we kind of know what's the thoughts because uh, they wrote uh, various works, uh, history, memoirs, correspondence, and so on and so on. So kind of the, the basic kind of part of thinking uh, about uh, nation uh, in the 18th century um, was the following. For uh, uh, the Cossack officers and their descendants uh, who, who, who became Russian imperial nobles and aristocrats in the late 18th century, uh, nation was still an early modern phenomenon. Yes, it mm-hmm. mostly was embodied uh, by the own social group, which was uh, intermarried, interrelated, uh, and you can think about it as the uh, about the nation they they adhere to as essentially family affair. Yeah, because they were indeed inter- dozens of interrelated families who were primarily coming from uh, one region, and that was Lebanon, Ukraine, Petmanshina, or the Hetmanate uh, in the 19th century. Uh, Encompassing two provinces of Imperial Russia, Chernihiv and Poltava. So that's where the basis, that's where that Cossack nation survived in the 18th century. But what happened in the 19th century? Well, uh, the changes, generational changes, it's, it's, it's almost natural thing to say. But what happened to their particular vision of the old nation, Little Russia or Ukraine? Well, that's also a question of the so-called Little Russian Solution. Uh, and that's the term that historian Orlan Andreevsky used with respect to uh, this 18th century generation. So apparently, if you follow the logic uh, of Professor Andreevsky, and I use this in my book, uh, what happened is that uh, that Little Russian Solution, when you have uh, two loyalties, one to Little Russia, another to Russia, uh, became uh, incompatible. And so roughly after 1850, um, to be Little Russian and to be Russian at the same time, uh, in equal measures, was becoming basically impossible. And 1850, it's it's an approximate timeline, yes, when you have basically clear uh, change of generations. Um, When for example, the new generation that uh, came to dominate this Ukrainian uh, political culture, Tarashevchenko, Mikhail Gustomarov, and others, uh, they saw themselves differently. Yes, they saw themselves not as a kind of early modern nation of nobles, but as a, as, as a kind of uh, romantic populist for whom actual nobility was not even part of their own imagined community. So that was uh, a, a big shift, even in terms of uh, social component. Yes. And uh, ideologically, they were also different. Yeah, we will discuss a bit later uh, in subsequent questions uh, how different they were ideologically. But uh, 
what I want to say now is that uh, again this with the Russian solution failed with the rise of Russian nationalism in the late 19th century uh, and the, simply the space for the Russians who were patriotically the Russians but also Russians they became smaller and smaller mm-hmm. to the point that by the, by, by, by the late 19th century uh, you can't really be uh, more than uh, the little Russian uh, publicly professing your own identity. Yeah. So that's that's became impossible, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that's 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 why uh, the tradition of this late 18th century little Russian patriotism simply collapsed uh, in the 19th century under influence of different factors. One of them being the rise of Russian nationalism. But also the rise of populist Ukrainian nationalism, uh, which uh, simply was less likely to find a compromise with this Russian, old Russian uh, patriotism, with the idea of the old Russian nation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, as we mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, uh, your book also touches upon the um, Austrian-Hungarian uh, Empire. Uh, and although the Russian Empire and the Austro-Hungarian Empire exercised at times similar impacts, but on a larger scale, they shaped cultural production, political attitudes in different uh, ways. So considering these differences, how did the Ukrainians uh, living in two different empires Empires collaborate, uh, collaborated and united, but maybe it can also be an opportunity to talk a little bit about those influences on the Ukrainian um, identity under the um, Austro-Hungarian Empire compared to what you just discussed in terms of the Russian Empire. It's another big question, and I want to emphasize that I'm not a historian of Ukraine in within the Austro-Hungarian Empire, mm-hmm. but I will again provide my answer as a historian of Ukraine, primarily uh, within the Russian Empire. And my answer would be pretty straightforward, is that uh, the Ukrainian story in the long 19th century uh, was uh, not simply a national story. It was transnational and international in the sense that it uh, was occurring uh, on both sides of the Russian border, and that border was, was crucial in the development of Ukrainian national identity and Ukrainian national movement. Um, and how that border could be could be uh, traversed, how could it be, how could ideas and people uh, kind of circulate uh, uh, beyond the border? It's a, it's, a, it's a question in itself. But uh, the links between Ukrainians living in the Russian Empire and those who lived in the Austrian Empire intensified really uh, since the 1830s and 40s when the, the new generation of uh, of the Ukrainians but also Russians from the Russian Empire started traveling uh, to to Austria yes, where they discovered uh, people who were very similar to Ukrainians in, in, in Russia these were intellect, few intellectuals that started traveling in the 1830s and 40s, but uh, uh, that border uh, uh, became crucial again later in the century. Yes, when uh, when 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 the ideas and people uh, began to circulate on, on a wider scale, 
but without that kind of connection, uh, we can think that the Ukrainian nation, as we know, as we know it today, would probably would not have happened, as because Vienna provided kind of safe space eventually, as for for the development mm-hmm. of the Ukrainian uh, idea, but also Ukrainian political discourse. Yes, because uh, the Austrian Empire allowed for uh, uh, much more space central, yes, uh, for negotiations of uh, identities than did Russia for various reasons, yes, Austria would be a constitutional state particularly in the late 19th century, Russia was not, and for many other reasons uh, the, the Austrian Ukraine, particularly Galicia yes, became the so-called uh, Ukraine, Ukraine pigment yes, that is the major hub as for the Ukrainian national identity in, in the, in the, in the, in the long latin century, particularly in the late 19th century. But what is interesting, uh, and many people in the West, uh, historians, but mostly general public, they thought, or they, they still think, that Ukrainian nationalism uh, was centrally born in, in the West, Galicia, uh, well, probably extrapolating the events from the 20th century, mm-hmm. yes, all the way back to the 19th, but we know that the Ukrainian national idea essentially was born in Eastern Ukraine, uh, most particularly in Kharkiv, still in the early 19th century, and that's where it's, it began to spread around. Obviously, Kyiv became an important place uh, later in the century, but all these ideas, which were essentially born uh, in Eastern and Central Ukraine, then simply were implanted to uh, uh, to Galicia, to Austrian Ukraine, and there they blossomed. But they were born in the East. Mm-hmm. Yes. Then they came to the West, where there was simply more space, uh, because again, Austria was a constitutional state, uh, which uh, allowed for various kind of national debates and discussions. Uh, and that was crucial. But again, but the initial impetus came from the East. Uh, still from the 1830s and 40s, and then you have new generate romantic generations of local Galicians, as most famously, uh, uh, the Russian triad, or Ruska Tritsa, uh, who first really adapted intellectual uh, influences from Ukrainian writers uh, that who lived on, on, on the Russian Empire, including including uh, Kharkiv Romantics. And later, Shevchenko, who became really an important person for Galicians. And that was done consciously, yes. So this influence from Eastern and Central Ukraine uh, in Galicia led to, again, the blossoming of its own uh, Ukraine identity, yes. But people had to make a conscious decision, yes, that they wanted to be part of the same imagined community. Yes, uh, it was not preordained that... Ukrainian identity would become rooted in, in Western Ukraine, in, in Galicia. It had to be done consciously by very specific people, yes, who made a choice, yes, to, to, uh, to leave, or at least first of all, to imagine uh, this common mm-hmm. uh, community to which they wanted to belong. And then other things uh, were secondary, even, even language, because language had to be basically uh, 
uh, be created as a as a, as a common common uh, vehicle, common instrument. Yes, uh, and there were debates. Yes, to what extent you know West Ukrainians, Galicians in particular, had to preserve its own distinctiveness in in, in linguistically in the many other respects. But the decision was first of all kind of conscious decision to to embrace this common space. Yes, and it, and then all other things kind of came into place a bit later. Uh, but the importance of the Austro-Russian border uh, was crucial. Yes, and I, again, I, I would reiterate, uh, I think if we imagine that uh, Western Ukraine or Austrian Ukraine and Austrian-ruled Ukraine never existed, then we might have had totally different Ukraine today if, if, if any Ukraine at all. Yes, I think I would, I would, I would describe uh, great difference, uh, great importance mm-hmm. to this imperial divide, mm-hmm. which uh, not only as a divide, as a border, but also as a context zone. Yes, mm-hmm. as a uh, as 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 a space uh, for interaction. Yes, mm-hmm. exchanges, and that's what uh, was crucial in in the long 19th century for the idea of Ukraine and for eventually for Ukraine as a as a nation yes mm-hmm. spreading two borders yeah I, I truly appreciate how your uh, book uh, really shows how the um, development of Ukrainian of, of, of Ukrainian nation um, was taking place while interacting with these two empires and of course in the first place that as you emphasize this difference between the Ukrainians and the um, Russians uh, while there are a lot of um, issues a lot of um, uh, intersections right in which the Ukrainians and the Russians would differ. Um, you um, you also um, put a lot of emphasis on the memory of the um, Cossack Hetmanate and uh, the experience of serfdom uh, in Ukraine. And, well, we will use this term, right? In Ukraine and in Russia per se. Um, so uh, I guess what I would like uh, to do is to combine these two um, experiences if, if you will, um, that really contributed to this profound difference between the Ukrainians and the Russians. So would you would you just guide us very, very briefly uh, in terms of how these two uh, instances contributed to this profound uh, difference between the Ukrainians and Russians, not only in terms of, of course, language, as you pointed out, because a lot of Ukrainians would speak Russian um, back then or some sort of um, uh, variant, but in terms of uh, political attitudes uh, that would become essential uh, in the 20th century? Uh, I will start with the discussion of the Edmonite and Cossacks in general as essentially probably the most important legacy uh, in Ukrainian modern history. Yeah? Uh, and here we, we can clearly compare Ukrainian Russian cases, because in the Russian case, uh, well, we know that there were all Cossacks in Russia, they still exist, Cossack communities, but the historical role of Cossacks in in Russia was different from the role Cossack, Cossacks played in Ukraine, in Ukrainian history, yes, and and then the legacy, yes, of an imagery and symbolism 
was very different. Because for Ukrainians uh, in the 19th century, the Kodaks became the prime symbol of the identity. Yeah, that's how uh, Ukrainians uh, tended to identify themselves with, yeah, kind of as, 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 a, as, a, as a community uh, descended from Kodaks, even though most Ukrainians in the 19th century did not descend from Kodaks, they're mostly peasants. But what merit is this kind of, it's, it's imaginary links to Kodaks, yeah, and, 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 and what it meant, it meant that people, um, what people saw in Kozaks, even peasants who were most illiterate, for them Kozaks meant freedom, or at least the fight, struggle for freedom, yes, kind of freedom living, freedom living spirit. That was common, uh, common self-image for Ukrainians in the 19th century. Not only uh, among the intellectual uh, elites, but also among the general populace, because we know the, even from uh, various peasant riots, people wanted to become Cossacks, they wanted to recreate uh, the Cossacks regiments or the Cossacks like the Cossack, uh, uh, lifestyle, because for them that was the symbol of freedom, and that's what almost kind of by default when, when, when Ukrainians thought of themselves in the 19th century was, well, we are the descendants of Cossacks, and that's what we want to be, yes, not uh, is simply we not we not simply peasants or serfs. Yes, we were of our we are descendants of freedom loving thoughts. And that became uh probably the most kind of defining uh part of the Ukrainian national myth in the nineteenth century. And it's interesting that Sergei Kerchik who uh, analyzed uh the Ukrainian national myth in the nineteenth century, particularly uh by looking at the Ukraine files as the group of national Ukrainian intelligentsia in, at the time, he uh, he summed it actually very very brilliantly because uh, what he wrote is that that Ukrainian national myth had uh, two kind of paradigms. Yes, first was the Cossack one that's linked Ukrainians with uh, with history with his luck, freedom loving Cossacks. And another part was the peasant one, yes, mm -hmm. connecting them to the democratic present. Uh, all these elements they refer to democracy, whatever people understood by it, uh, and, and and hence uh, uh, that vision was actually very much different from uh, the image of, of self-image of Russians, yes, for whom uh, it was very difficult to imagine themselves outside of the state outside of, of, of the official church, yes, outside of those institutions uh, that's pretty much combated oppression, yes. And so even on the level of these myths, yes, how history played out, uh, actually uh, has played out, has played a great role in how Ukrainians and Russians saw themselves and each other, yes. And even if that was all the national myths, uh, the myths influence how people behave, how they see the world and, and each other. And so, uh, in this sense, uh, we can see that uh, the Kodak history, yes, was imagined, perceived, and kind of reimagined by Ukrainians and Russians differently. Yes, and that's what we even see uh, even today. Yes, because uh, if, 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 if you remember the 
uh, it was a renaissance since the early 1990s when people started kind of recreating the uh, Cossack imagery, first simply dressing up as Cossacks, but then it became serious. And at the time of Euromaidan, 2013 to 2014, we remember uh, how actually people uh, behaved like Cossacks. Yes, even the very concept of, of Sotni. Yes, all those things uh, uh, became uh, basically intermingled with how people actually uh, saw themselves at the present. Yes, so that's called like imagery uh, is crucial even in front of our eyes. When we uh, look at how uh, people in the army today, yes, even use the concept of kind of comrades in arms, which also refers back to uh, to this imaginary Cossacks. Uh, and, and we see how uh, important that imagery remains today for Ukrainians. Whereas Russians historically grapple with the old national identity. Yes, because again, um, uh, for Russians, it's very hard to imagine themselves yes, outside of traditional pillars of such as autocracy, the official church, and other institutions uh, that were created pretty much for oppression. And you can feel it even in, 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 in how people today in independent Russia uh, perceive politics, perceive uh, the neighbors, perceive the outside world. It's still to a certain degree part of the 19th century. And we can actually see in front of our eyes today in people's attitudes and people's uh, ideas and how they see the power of the government. It's pretty much remarkable mm-hmm. how that century is alive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, that's probably um, a part of um, that explanation, uh, right, to some extent, why this idea about Russians and Ukrainians, quote-unquote, being one people is so viable in Russia. So, and you par- partially addressed this this kind of question as well. Um, but um, just to conclude our conversation, um, again, um, w- would you offer your commentary on these reasons why uh, this idea is so viable, why there was no um, profound reconsideration of how the Russians, for instance, see themselves, why they cannot see themselves outside of Ukraine for um, in, in, in this case. And I know that it's not a part of your project, it's not part of your um, book, uh, but um, uh, I would appreciate your commentary or your opinion on, on, on this. Unfortunately, it's a pressing issue, and as long as Russians are not able to see themselves uh, in kind of secular national terms, mm-hmm. yes, ethnic terms, mm-hmm. we're going to have problems with them. We mean Ukrainians and people who live in Ukraine. Uh, Russian Russians never acquiesced to the collapse of the so-called old Russian nation, which was an imperial concept created roughly again in the middle of middle 19th century uh, and became kind of some official vision of 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 Russianness in the empire which left almost no space for distinct Ukrainian identity that's why that little little Russian solution failed yes because simply few in fewer space yes was left for anything distinct anything different from this official version 
of Russians. Uh, and paradoxically, uh, that concept of Russianness, and it's almost again in a tradition of this old R Russian nation, the term uh, that uh, was widely used in the nineteenth century, Abshevskinero. That's 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 the original Russian word. Was almost uh, <laughs> almost totally fully resurrected in in Putin's Russia, uh, as if the Soviet Union, the Soviet experience did not exist because, well, we all know that the Soviets, the Bolsheviks, they they were forced to recognize ethnic distinctiveness of various communities. They, 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 they had to acquiesce to the creation of national republics, including Ukraine. Uh, we know about the colonization of the 1920s, and even even if yes, we also know about repressions, Stalinist terror, Ukrainian. Distinctiveness was never questioned. It was recognized, and suddenly, uh, after two, after year two thousand, we have kind of a regression all, all the way back to the imperial kind of thinking, and that's what uh, is terrifying. Actually, is how 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 people don't learn historical lessons. How they tend to kind of fall back to. Uh, almost primordial uh, behaviors and, and 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 mentality, and 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 that's what is striking. Yes, that's 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 what we have today. Is again as as as, as a resurrection of real thinking, and unfortunately, it's not only Putin's just fault. Yes, there's something deeper there. Yes, something more primordial. Again, uh, we see today that Russians simply. Uh, cannot think of themselves as a national community outside of the state, outside of the institution, uh, outside of the, of the official church, whether they go to the, to the church or not, they still kind of cling to the same uh, institutions that's, well, they were, they, were, they were not primordial, but they clearly come from previous centuries, yes, and, and that's unfortunate, and I think uh, that is the problem. Again, we're facing with the same dilemma that Ukraine is incompatible with Russia as long as Russia remains autocratic and imperial. Period. There is there is there is nothing that can solve this this dilemma uh, as long as Russia doesn't change itself. Mm -hmm. And whether it happens uh, in, in the near future, well, we will see. But Ukraine pays. They're having price uh, because Russians cannot solve their own national issues. Yes, they can sort out who they are. Yes, they can acquiesce to the to the collapse of of this old Russian nation. It's, and, and, and this is again this legacy of nineteenth century. Absolutely, and obviously the main paradox was that some historians, I mean historians, know that the idea about this treaty triune. What, what, what would be the better term? To unite nation, Russians, Ukrainians, and Belarus, Belarusians, white Russians, little Russians, and white Russians, was the actual creation created by Ukrainian clergy in the 17th century. So that's a, that's again one of the kind of unforeseen consequences mm -hmm. of history, and that's the paradox. Mm -hmm. But now Ukraine has to again 
as to become a grave digger of the empire. These Russians don't want to do the historical work. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Sergei. Thank you so much for this conversation and thank you so much for your book that um, offers ample material for uh, learning how Ukraine developed as a state and as a nation. Uh, moreover, it also um, offers a lot of uh, information um, that actually invites and encourages to uh, focus on differences and on some distinctiveness rather than um, um, simplification. So congratulations again on the, on the book and uh, thank you so much for our conversation today. Thank you so much, Natalia, for this wonderful conversation and, and, and very thought-provoking questions. Thank you so much. Today I spoke with Serhii Bilenki about his new book, Laboratory of Modernity, Ukraine Between Empire and Nation, 1772-1914, published in 2023 by McGill Queens University Press in collaboration with the Canadian Institute for Ukrainian Studies. Thank you for listening to New Books in Ukrainian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.